The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. So much has changed since last Easter. The world has been shaken. Life has been disrupted. What we once called normal seems like it may never return. It's been easy to be discouraged, to lose hope, to feel the foundations of our faith begin to crumble. It's hard to keep our feet planted when the ground beneath feels like shifting sand. Now more than ever, we need to stand on the truth of Easter, a day which changed our eternity changed our world forever. Death was defeated by life. Sin was consumed by mercy. The grave was swallowed up by victory. See, even in the darkest of moments, the love of Jesus could not be stopped. His faithfulness could not be broken. And when the dust settled, Jesus, he stood alive and victorious. Today, may we remember the truth of Easter, the power of the resurrection, and the promise of eternity. Yes, the world has been shaken, but the grave, it's still empty. And Jesus, he's still risen. understand? I have seen Jesus. He is not dead. Everyone needs to know. But let me catch my breath. My name is Mary Magdalene. Three days ago, my friend, my teacher, Jesus, he was killed, crucified. He was dead. I watched him suffer terribly, and then I watched him die. It was by far the worst day of my life. I was there when they took his broken body down from that cross. I saw them wrap his whole body in linen, and they laid his body in a tomb and rolled that stone in front of it. It was all over. But then today happened. Early this morning, I went to the tomb together with some of the other women. We were just hoping someone would let us in. Someone would let us into that tomb one more time in order to anoint Jesus with spices. We were hoping that someone would have mercy on us and move the stone out of the way so we could go in. But when we got there, the grave was wide open. And we panicked. After everything else that had happened, had someone taken away Jesus' body as well? I ran to where Peter and John were and told them, and they went to the tomb right away and saw that it was empty except for the linen and the cloth. And then they went back home. But I stayed back. I couldn't take another step. It was like all of the sorrow, all of the sadness, all of the grief these last few days had finally hit me all at once, and I couldn't bear it anymore. 
I just stood there beside that tomb and I sobbed. I looked inside one more time and was surprised to see two men dressed all in white. They were sitting in the same spot where Jesus' body had been. I didn't know how they had gotten there. Honestly, I thought I was alone in the garden. One of them asked why I was crying, and I told them someone had taken away the body of my Lord, and I didn't know where they had put him. And then I realized there was someone standing behind me. I turned around to look, but with all the tears in my eyes, I couldn't see who he was. I actually thought he was the gardener. He asked me who I was looking for, and I let it all out. I begged him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him. I will get him. And then, then he said my name. And I recognized him. It was Jesus. It was Jesus. He is alive. You know, Jesus sometimes used to talk about how the Son of Man would suffer and be killed and rise again. And I didn't understand it then. And I really don't understand it now. But I do know that it has happened and that somehow this changes it all. And hallelujah, my Jesus is alive and everything is going to be all right. Amen. This does change it all. And in every crucial way that it matters, everything is going to be all right. Our Savior has risen and he is victorious and we are victorious in him. And we are going to spend some time now. Let's just worship him from the bottom of our hearts. I invite you to stand. Let's sing together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for what you've accomplished in rising from the dead. You are victorious and you are glorious. And that is why we worship you and also, you've given us so much through it because of your love for us. You have invited us to participate in, in, in being risen from the dead as well, leaving our sins in the grave behind into a new life with you now and for always. And thank you again, Lord, that this can't be undone. There is never going to be a day, ever going to be a day now and for all of eternity where you didn't already rise from the dead, where the grave isn't already empty. And we thank you, Lord, that you've done this. And thank you for what it means to us. I thank you that we can know your presence with us now and every day. Pray all of this in your name. Amen. Good morning, church. We are the Gonzalez family, Agustin, Gretel, and Paola. We have the honor and pleasure to read the scripture for you today. We are going to read Revelation 1, verses 4 to 8 and 12 to 18. Let's read. John to the seven churches that are in Asher, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits that are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, of the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loved us and has freed us from our sins, by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his god and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen behold he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierce him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him 
Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a surface, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Blessed his name. Amen. Thank you. Augustine, Gretel, and uh, Paula, thank you for reading the scripture this morning. And <clears throat> Susan, also thank you for singing to us today. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> um, well, today I get to share the word with us, but let us take a time to just pause and pray to God before we do so. Thank you, God, for the privilege of uh, opening the Bible today and looking at it together. And we count on you being present by the presence of your Holy Spirit. And uh, you're able to be everywhere at once. We just thank you that you're here and that you're able to minister in a very personal way to every one of us. And so we ask you as we open up the Scripture and look at you, Lord Jesus, the risen Christ, we pray that you will unveil to us more of who you are, and a response to you by faith. We ask it in your name. Amen. <clears throat> Each year at Easter, we are confronted by the reality uh, of a, a reality that flies in our face, that confronts us with what we might normally day by day live kind of in a, a functional atheism, kind of like like day by day, we're not really living as though there's a living God that's walking with us. But Easter comes and it's right in our face that, that God did the impossible. God did the impossible. Came to earth in the form of a man. He lived for 33 years on this earth. He was crucified on the cross for sins that he did not commit. He was buried for three days and he rose from the dead. He he visited and, and was seen by many people, many of whom bore witness in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament. And then he was taken up into heaven, he was ascended, and, and now he's at the right hand of the Father. And all of this is literally true. It's not just kind of make-believe stuff, it's, it's literally true. And according to his last words and his promise, we are awaiting where he's coming back, and he's going to gather those who believe in him, who follow him, who follow this impossible God and believe in what he has said and done. <clears throat> and so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the key historical marker to our faith. And I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He, he gets off on, uh, on, a, on a wonder of, of what if it's all not true? What if Christ didn't rise from the dead? He says six things about that. 
He says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, number one, our preaching is in vain. <laughs> I'm just blowing hot air up here. Number one, our preaching is, not, is, is in vain, he says, if Christ is not raised from the dead. Secondly, um, our faith is futile. Whatever we're, whatever we're doing, believing in this God, and it's all futile. And we're misrepresenting God. That's another thing. We Christians, we're, we're sending out false notes here. Thirdly, he says, we're still in our sins. We're not forgiven. Fifthly, those who died believing before us, they're lost forever. And then finally, the sixth one, he says, and we Christians of all people on earth are the most to be pitied. And we're living a delusion, you know. But then I love it because after that, he goes into verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So let's circle back and go back through those six again. Christ has been raised from the dead. That means that our preaching and our sharing and our witness about the reality of Jesus is not in vain. It matters. Secondly, he says, those who believe our faith is not futile. It matters. Thirdly, we are not misrepresenting God. We're actually representing God in the way that is true and honorable and right. And everyone one day will stand before this God and realize it's true. Fourthly, he says, we're not still in our sins. We have been forgiven, delivered from our sins and awaiting eternal life. Those who have died before us have already entered into that incredible relationship with God. And finally, we're not the ones to most be pitied. The ones that are most to be pitied are those who say, I don't believe it. I don't buy it. I don't accept it. And I'm not going to live according to it either. Norman T. Wright says this. He says, Christians believe that on the third day after he was executed on Sunday, the first day of the week, Jesus of Nazareth was bodily raised from the dead, leaving an empty tomb behind him. And believing this requires that we exchange a worldview which says that such things can't happen for a worldview that says such things do happen. Another author by the name of Ajith Fernando, Sri Lankan author, says this. He says, he tells the story of a Muslim man who was converted to Christ, and one day a friend of his asked him why he had become a Christian instead of a Muslim. And he answered it this way. He said, well, it's like this. Suppose you are walking down a road and suddenly the, a fork in the road happens and you find you have to go in one of two directions and you didn't know which way to go but there were two men standing at the fork in the road. One, le one living and one dead. Which one are you going to ask for for directions? And that's a stark reality of what the claims of Christ and of Christianity are compared to all the other world religions, all the other philosophies, all the other ways of trying to live your life and prove your existence on earth is that Jesus Christ, the God-man, came to earth, answered the question of sin, <clears throat> invites us into relationship eternally with him. It's that simple. 
John Stott write this. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In this real world of pain, how could one worship a God who's immune to pain? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different countries, stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, his arms folded, his eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his lips, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, John Stott says, each time, after a while, I have to turn away from this Buddha. And he says, in my imagination, I turn instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding, thorn pricks, mouth and dry, uh, intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness on the cross. That's the God for me, he says. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death, and he suffered for us, and now, hallelujah, he lives for us. That's the way John Stott saw it. This morning, I would like to open up a scripture in the book of Revelation that was read to us, and I'd like to look at a chapter that in all of the Bible describes Jesus as he is right now more than any other chapter in the entire Bible. And it's an important thing to do. We know that the Apostle John wrote this book as he received it from the risen and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. He is the, near the end of his life. He's in his 80s when he writes this. It's 95 or so A.D., when John writes this, he's been put in exile on the island of Patmos by the Roman government. And there he is, kind of as a prisoner on an island. And you would think that after a man has served like John the Apostle, that, that uh, God would be done with him. I mean, he's already written the gospel that bears his name that tells about the life and teaching of Jesus. He's already written three other letters that also bear his name, the epistles, near the end of the Bible. But God adds one more book for him to write. It's the book of Revelation. And if you're 80 this morning or over, <laughs> if you're over 80 today, I want to ask you, what, what do you think your one more assignment from God is on this earth? before you hang up the skates and meet God in glory. Revelation is, of course, also one of the most mysterious books in the Bible, and I agree with an author that I've been reading recently that is one of our own. He's actually here this morning, Stephen Mendes. Stephen has written a commentary on the book of Revelation, and he says that the primary purpose of this book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, and I quite agree. In fact, let me read to you more in detail what Stephen wrote. He says, here we have a powerful image of the unveiled, the glorified Jesus Christ. It is a powerful image, distinct from the baby in the manger or from the Christ on the cross. We get stuck in the incarnational view of Jesus. We think of him as he was in the Gospels. We fail to realize that not only was he resurrected, but ascended and has been glorified. This is the Jesus that will come back 
And this is the Jesus that is ultimately victorious. Amen. I quite agree. I quite agree. It is our default to think of Jesus as he is presented in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but that's not the way he is now. After his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension, he is now at the right hand of the Father, and what an incredible, glorious image we see in Revelation chapter 1 of the Jesus that we will see when he returns. Revelation chapter 1. Now I want you to know, it is really, really worthy to get into the Gospels and saturate yourself in, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This, this is going to give you a picture of Jesus, and nowhere else will you find a person, a man, who lived the Christ life, the Christian life, the way Jesus perfectly lived the Christ life. Nowhere else will you find a person that lives so in tune with the Heavenly Father as the one that you will find in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The one who didn't live his life like a thermometer, you know, just measuring the climate of circumstance all around you, but one who lived his life like a thermostat who set the climate of the tone of all around you, and yet in the midst of doing so had the incredible capacity to be so intuitive and sensitive to the needs of everyone around him. Oh, we need the Gospels. And we need the Christ of the Gospels. When we see Jesus in this place, we see one who is worthy of our praise, who lived the Christian life, who, who showed us how to pick up our cross and follow him. One who is incredibly worthy of our praise. The Jesus with boots on. The Jesus with feet on the ground. The Jesus not up in the balcony looking down on us, but right among us. We need the Gospels. We need the Gospels also to learn how to make disciples. We've got to follow Jesus. He, he knows how to make disciples. We need, we need the Gospels to learn how to pray like Jesus as the man prayed. We need the Gospels to learn how to look at other people broken with messed up stuff. Some of them have been sinned against and some of them have sinned and, and, and Jesus looks at them, not what they are, what they've become, but what they could be because he created them in his image and he has a plan to restore that image into his glory. Oh yeah, we need the Gospels. But we will not understand who Jesus is today. Right now, as I stand before you, we will not understand that Jesus, the one that will one day break through the clouds of heaven and come down to earth again and gather his church. We need to understand that, and that's found in Revelation chapter 1. And so in this scripture, this description of Jesus, we see a Christ who is exalted. Now, he's robed in what is called apocalyptic literature in the Revelation. That means that it's, it's, it's robed in symbolic language that has to be understood in order to understand who Jesus is. I think that what we see here is that behind the images that are painted is a real Jesus who really is right now still very much among us and is shepherding his church by the presence of his Holy Spirit and through his angels. Sometimes when I go to the office and I approach my door and I see the sign on the door, I get a little nervous because it says lead pastor. And I realize, no, no. I know who the lead pastor of this church is. It's Jesus. 
So let's look at what this incredible picture is. Now, I want you to know as I begin, Donald Carson has said, and I quite agree, that when we read the symbolism of Revelation, we should not try to paint it or draw it. I know there's some really great artists in the crowd here today. We come up with something like, uh, like that. And uh, this was one of the better ones I found on Google Images. There's lots of really weird and scary ones, too. And the point that Donald Carson is making is this simply that what Revelation is is not literal. It's literary symbolism. And literary symbolism is meant to, con- to give us an understanding of what the Scriptures say about that image so that we understand the characteristic of the risen Christ. It's not meant to be drawn or painted and looked at. In fact, let me read to you what Ray Stedman says. He says the key to understanding the symbols of Revelation is recognizing that almost all of these symbols have been given to us elsewhere in the Bible. If you try to read Revelation without any understanding of the rest of the Bible, you are doomed to confusion. And so we understand then that Scripture has to be understood. Maybe that's one of the reasons why I haven't attempted an expository series in the book of Revelation, because I'm waiting to understand the whole rest of the Scriptures. By the way, there is a group that is studying Revelation right now. Barb Brewer is leading it. They're using the Precept Ministries curriculum. I was reading it just the other day. And in the beginning introduction, they talk about a a warning to not just take this description of Jesus and make it a bunch of information in your head, but rather sit in it and meditate upon him and think about who he is for you right now. Let's look at it. We're going to look at the seven characteristics that are kind of the, the picture that John has given of Jesus. Um, it's not comprehensive. No mortal could comprehensively understand the risen Christ, but, but it is complete. And seven is that number of completion. And so there are seven characteristics. And we start with a picture of his clothing. John is given a picture in verse 13 of his clothing. It says, it says in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Now, I want you to note three things about verse 13. Number one, he's called the Son of Man, which takes us back to the book of Daniel because in Daniel 7.13, the vision that he had, Daniel way back then was given a vision of the, the glorified Jesus. And he's called the Son of Man. And it's not surprising that when Christ comes walking in the flesh, the favorite title that he refers to himself as is the Son of Man. Why? Because he wants us to know that he identifies with us in all of our mortality. Secondly, I want you to note in verse 20 in this scripture, the lampstands that are mentioned in verse 13 are, we're told they're the seven churches. Now again, seven meaning this complete number, it simply means that these are the churches of all time, everywhere represented, any kind of church, this is representative of the church, the lampstands. And then thirdly, this robe, this long robe, immediately the first century readers would have been thinking, oh, that's a a priestly robe. And they'd have been taken back to Aaron, the priest in, in Exodus chapter 29. Clothes represent a role. If a police officer walked in today, if a doctor walked in, if a military person walked in, 
we would, we would identify them by their, their uniform, their, their robe, their clothing. The world tries to tell us that you are what you wear, and they've got it all wrong. Because you're not what you... I, I could put on a military uniform, and I'm not a soldier. I could put on the, the garb, the robe of a surgeon, but you don't want me operating on your brain. You see, the Bible turns that around. The Bible says, you wear what you are. And Jesus Christ is our high priest. He represents God to us and us to God. He bridges the gap. That's what the priest, priest means. He builds a bridge. He doesn't make a blockade. And because he is worthy of that, that that's who he is, he can wear the robe. You and I, as Christians, we're called. We're robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not fake. It's because Jesus Christ, through his blood on the cross, died to forgive and cleanse you of all sin. And so you, you wear what you are. And so here's the first picture of Jesus that's given. A risen and glorified priest the Son of Man, he's one of us, he's risen and exalted, but where else is he? Verse 13 says, he's in the midst of his lampstands. He's in the midst of his church. He's the lead pastor that's, that's still shepherding his flock. He hasn't left us alone. He's still Emmanuel, God with us, and he's leading his people. Secondly, it describes in verse 14, his head. It says the hair of his head is white like wool, like snow, this picture is the wisdom of age, perhaps, because back in Daniel 7, where it's talking about the Ancient of Days, God Almighty, the Ancient of Days, it also says that his hair is like wool. But this is also a symbol of purity, this white purity. Perhaps the early Christians, when they read this book of the Bible, would have thought of David's Psalm 51, where he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And so the second picture of Jesus is this reigning, reigning, ruling God, but is also the one who comes to cleanse us and forgive us and make us right with him so he can, we can rule with him. Then we go on and it talks about his eyes. Verse 14, bla blazing fire, flames of fire, his eyes. This biblical imagery of fire is often conducive of, of judgment. But it's not only judgment. There's more, because you'll notice that it is the eyes of Jesus that are like a flame of fire. It really makes me think of the soliloquy that Melissa gave us of, Mar of Mary Magdalene on Friday when she was up here, and she was describing how Jesus looked at her and saw her. And when he looked at her and saw her, he saw her like no other man ever saw her because his eyes were like blazing fire. Eugene Peterson says, Jesus doesn't look at us, he looks into us. So all the, all the facade that you hold up to other people, everything that you hold up that other people see, now Jesus goes right past that. He's got eyes that are blazing fire. He looks right into your soul, into the very self of you. He knows you. 
And if you understand what a loving, loving God he is, you don't need to be afraid of judgment. He can be your friend. Then we read about his feet. His feet are like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. Again, we go back to Daniel chapter 2 this time. And if, if you go and read that chapter, you'll know that this King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has a dream. He, he has a dream, and in the dream, this big, tall statue has feet of iron and clay. Now, if you think about iron and clay, you know they don't bond well. They're going to crumble. Iron and clay don't stay together. And that's the prophecy that Daniel told the king of Babylon about is your, your kingdom's not going to stand on those feet. And indeed, we look back in history and we can see that the kingdom of Babylon fell just like a whole bunch of other civilizations fell since that time because they're built on a faulty foundation. Our Western civilization is bound to fall. It's built on a faulty foundation. But then John gives us the vision of Christ's kingdom. It says the kingdom of Christ is, is built on feet with burnished bronze. Now, what is bronze? Well, bronze is actually a combination of iron and copper. And iron is strong, but it rusts over time. And copper, it won't rust, but it's kind of pliable. You put iron and copper together, and it is the ideal foundation to build a kingdom on. And that's the description that we're given of the kingdom of Christ. The strength of iron, the endurance of copper, such is the kingdom of Christ. His reign shall never end, and with his feet he will trample every enemy that comes against him. Which leads us to the next feature of the risen and glorified Jesus in verse 15. It says that his voice is like the roar of many waters. Wow. We go to a lot of places in Scripture that we don't have time to this morning. But the voice of the Lord would have immediately brought to mind creation because it says Jesus spoke. His voice just brought everything into existence. Or maybe we, we could think about how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He, he just spoke with his voice. He said, Lazarus, come forth, and he walked out of the grave. Maybe he's thinking of Psalm 95. It's quoted in Hebrews 3 as well, where the psalmist says, Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. What is the rebellion? Well, it refers back to a time mentioned in Numbers chapter 14. When the children of Israel rebelled against God, they said, we don't want to go any further. And because of that, they wandered around the, Israel, uh, the desert for 40 more years. His voice. In his right hand, verse 16, he held seven stars from his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword. Now, you need to know this is a picture of war in this, in this portion. The risen Christ, as he is right now, as even as I stand before you right now, he is dressed and ready for battle. But it's not a conventional warfare or battle that he wages against the forces of evil and darkness. 
Because remember, in verse 20, we're reminded that the seven stars are angels. The right hand has the sword, or not the sword, but the angels. They're at his right hand, ready to do his bidding. The sword that he's talking about, it says, comes out of his mouth. It's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the truth of God. You see, the way that Christ wages war in this spiritual warfare, even as he calls us to wage in spiritual battle, is with the truth of his, of his Word and the voice of God and the Word of God. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, though we walk in the flesh, we don't wage war we don't wage war according to the flesh, for the weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. And he says, we're, gonna, we're, we're ready to take captive every thought. Take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Take prisoner is the idea. Make a prisoner of every thought. And take a look at that thought. What is that thought? Oh, that's, that's not a good thought. That's not true. Make it a prisoner of Christ. Take another thought out of your brain that you think of one day. Oh, does God really think about that, about me that way? No, that's not true. Put it, make it a prisoner of Christ. Take thought, take captive every thought, make it obedient to Christ. Take another thought out of your brain. Say, well, that, that I think is true. The Bible teaches that. Let's, let's keep that one. See, that's, that's spiritual warfare. Strongholds are mostly in our minds. We have wrong beliefs. And so the Scriptures teach us to participate in this truth-telling, in this warfare. And then finally, there is the face of Jesus, which is described, I know I'm going fast, It'd be great to just sit in this alone and think about the risen Christ. But the final feature is the face of Jesus. And it says his face is like the sun shining in its full strength. I don't know what picture comes to your mind in the rest of Scripture. I think of Moses maybe coming down from the mountain. His face was shining. He had to put a veil over it. Or maybe it's Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when, when he had to he was so transfigured before them. He was glorious. Jesus, the Son of God, is the Son. A glorious vision that John gives. Now, here's, here's key. I love this part. Verse 17, it says, John says, When I saw this, when I saw him, this risen, glorified Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he, has, he laid his right hand on me, and he said this. Verse 18. Fear not. Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Satan panicked on Easter Sunday. That first Easter Sunday, Satan got up and he said, Where's my keys? And Jesus said, I got the keys of death and hell. <laughs> and Jesus says, for every one of you, 
who come under me and under my righteousness and under the work of me on the cross and through the empty grave and the resurrection, who come under my intercession in heaven, every one of you, you don't need to fear death and hell anymore. Amen? I want to read to you something. Have you ever heard that song, I Can Only Imagine? It talks about what is, going to, what is it going to be like when I see Jesus? This is Jesus that's being described in Revelation 1. What is it going to be like when I stand before him, when I fall on my face? And let me read to you something. It's from the life of Joni Erickson Tata. When Joni Erickson Tata was only 17 years old, she was injured in a diving accident, and she was paralyzed from the neck down. Joni continued to practice her Christian faith, but... She was a quadriplegic, and it brought obvious limitations to her life, including her worship. In one of her books, she recalls attempting, attending a convention where the speaker closed the service by asking everyone to get up and then to kneel for prayer on their knees. She sat in her wheelchair as five or 600 people got up and then knelt down. And she said, I couldn't stop the tears. But her tears were not of self-pity. She says, tears were streaming down my cheeks because I was struck with the beauty of seeing so many people on their knees before the Lord. It was a picture of heaven for me. Sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump and dance and kick and do aerobics, although I'm sure Jesus will be delighted to watch me rise on my tiptoes. There's something I plan to do that may please him even more first. If possible, she says, if possible, somewhere, sometime, before the party gets started, before the guests are called into that big banquet hall, the wedding feast of the Lamb of God, the first thing I want to do in heaven, I plan to do on my resurrected legs, is to drop onto my grateful and glorified knees and there kneel at the feet of my Jesus. And I, with shriveled and bent fingers and atrophied muscles and gnarled knees and no feeling from the shoulders down, I will one day have a new body, a light and bright and clothed in righteousness body, powerful and dazzling. And then she says this, no religion no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, God, amen. Thank you, our Lord and Savior Jesus, risen and glorified. We just get a little glimpse of you here even in Revelation chapter 1. Oh, Lord, you're worthy. You're worthy to receive all the glory and honor. And, Lord, one day we will join with the multitude from all the families and nations and tribes on this earth, and we will join with them in saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive all glory and power and dominion and might. For holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Oh, Lord, would you receive our praise from each one of our lives and bring us into that place where we can offer you our hearts and our lives in full worship. We ask in your name. Amen. Lord Jesus, you are risen. 
You are ascended. You are glorified. You are powerful for all of eternity. And you love us. Every one of us. You know every heart in this room. You know every person here. You know everything that we carry. You know everything that we think about and worry about. You love us. I thank you that you have the power to save us. I thank you that anyone who puts their faith in you for the forgiveness of sin is in you forever, is, is safe forever, and will be with you forever. And I pray, Lord, that for each one here, that you would continue to grow us closer to you, that we will enjoy you more and more, honor you more and more. Thank you for everything you've done for us. In your precious name, we pray. Amen. On this Resurrection Sunday, God bless you all. Have a great day.